what lie can sever, what is certain. That third line of that song we just sung. What lie can sever what is certain. I would love to tell you this morning that everything you read and see is true. It's not. That's about the most profound thing you're going to hear all day. Everything you read isn't true. But the promise is, what lie can sever what is certain? What storm, that song says, can wash away my hope? What threat of death can take my freedom? Lord, your wounds have paid my ransom. Because of what Christ has done, there is absolutely nothing that can sever us from the love of Christ. Listen, I'd be lying to you this morning, there's an example, if I told you that we lived in a world that discounts the truth, or values the truth, rather. The world doesn't value the truth. The world values what is eccentric. It values what sells. It values what gets an audience. It's always been true about the Word of God. Christ and His truth is often rejected, refuted by those who don't know that truth. So you shouldn't be surprised when a lot of your life you're dealing with a lot of lies and a lot of things that you don't seem to understand. How can someone feel that way? Because there is a desire to sever what is certain. I've been convinced and convicted in my own walk the last couple of weeks about how our certainty in God can sometimes waver. And one day we are very certain that all things in God, we have, no, we have really no real concerns, we have no real issues. Uh, we're living that mountaintop experience. And then other times we live as if there isn't a certainty. We live as if God has somehow taken his eye off of his people even just for a moment. And what ought to help you this morning is God has never taken his eye off of you. He's never taken his eye off of his certainties. A sovereign God doesn't turn away for a single moment. And yet, sometimes we as believers live as if what was once certain isn't certain anymore. With God, all things are certain. And there are threats, there are things that we're going to come across in our life that we're going to wonder, does God need me to help him? No, he doesn't. Now, we're called to minister, we're called to preach the gospel, we're called to give out the good news everywhere we go. But I will tell you this, God does not need us to make his certainties a reality. In other words, nothing you and I do is going to change God one way or the other. You're not going to make God be something that he's not. You're not going to change him. You're not going to make God second guess what he's already declared and ordained to be. No one will. You say, preacher, what do you say all this this morning? Because this is where our, where our lives are. We live in a cycle that now gives you more <laughs> times to doubt the certainties of God than ever before. It seems as if you cannot turn on a television, turn on a computer, look at your phone, and see believers acting as if God is not certain. 
The reality is, is God has given us a promise and he's given us a certainty of who he is by what we have in his word. Folks, this morning, if you don't believe God in every chapter and every verse and every book, your faith has a problem. Your faith has an issue. Now, again, our faith wavers. We have times when we doubt in our faith, but we have to understand that when we are dealing with God, we are not dealing with a God of hypotheticals. We're dealing with a God of certainty. Certainty. He's the only thing that's certain. There's not a certainty you will see tomorrow on this earth. There is no promise you will see this afternoon. But there is a certainty that you and I one day are going to die. We're going to stand before God. And I will tell you all the world concerns and all the vanity of this world will have passed away. And you will not be one bit concerned about anything that was happening on this earth when you get there. But we are to be believers who live the truth, right? Biblically speaking, we are to live the truth. Nothing more, nothing less. Not an amended truth, not a truth that's been edited, but truth. The Apostle Paul has been dealing with biblical truth. We've been talking about liberty. We've been talking about a believer's liberty in Christ, and we have covered so much ground. But this liberty that we have is not just inside the church. This liberty is every area of our life. Biblically, we are never to abuse the liberty that we have in Christ. As we've sung this morning, our tongue should be employed in the praise of God, not in the tearing down of men. God doesn't need us to tear down other people. Now, we proclaim the truth, and the, the truth is going to cut. If it's biblical truth, it's going to divide but God's truth is the only authority that's given that right. I don't have the right to take my own version of truth and make it authoritative. Does everybody understand that? I don't have that right. I can only take the truth as it's given, proclaim it as authoritative. Why? Because there is a certainty of the truth behind God. You and I still lie. Whether you believe it or not, we're still liars. There's been some time this week alone we haven't necessarily thought or told the entire truth. It's been our version of the truth. We deceive ourselves. If we say there's no sin in us, even unto this day, there's still sin in us. Again, we don't have the perfect standard of righteousness. We only have what God has given us and said, here is my standard and here's what I'm commanding you to do. Liberty is not for our advantage. A believer's liberty is for Christ to be exalted. Liberty is not so that I can say, look what I can or cannot do. No, rather it is, look at who Christ is. If you use any liberty to proclaim who you are, you're misusing liberty. If you use liberty to show who Christ is, then you are using biblical liberty. And that's the believer's responsibility. Remember, the Apostle Paul in Romans 14, verse 12, we spent the entire message last week on verse 12 alone. So then, 
every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. We talked about that in depth. How I will not give an account for you, per se, although as a pastor I will give an account for how I taught the flock that God entrusted to me. But based upon the truth that the Apostle Paul teaches in verse 12, Paul concludes in the previous 11 verses we had read, pretty much what is not to be done, and now for the remainder of this chapter, he shows us what we are to do. Again, I think we should think about the the thought today of Christ the only judge. That's what we dealt with last week, so we'll do kind of this as a second part. But understand, we must beware that we are not to abuse our liberty in Christ to cast down our brother or sister who is not yet strong. We won't spend a lot of time talking about the argument here because we know what's been happening. But we do know that though our sins have been removed, although we have been forgiven, we still are accountable for our actions. We're accountable to God. I'm not sure where it happened, but somewhere along the line, we started making our accountability to other people more important than our accountability to God. If we live our lives in that way that we say, listen, I'm ultimately accountable to God for everything, I think it's going to change the way we live our lives, not just our church lives, our personal lives, our private lives, our work lives, our school lives, whatever the case is. See, I'm, I'm thinking we're doubting the certainty of that judgment. I think there's a part of us that said, if, if, if we're certain we're going to give an account of ourselves for everything, that might just change the way we live our lives. If there was a guarantee that this afternoon, at 2 o'clock, you would stand before God and give an account, and you knew it, 2 o'clock, Again, put aside all of the, the, the theology of this aspect. I know, 2 o'clock, you're predict- I'm not predicting, I'm just asking. If you knew it, how would it change the way you lived your life? See, we talk about things we believe are certain. The certainty of Christ's return. The certainty of His return to gather His own unto Himself. You see, we're not just called to look at all the glorious things that are coming. We're also to be sure that we are giving account for our conduct, giving account for our stewardship. And as has become a common theme around here, not intentionally, is to glorify God in everything that we do. Keep His commandments. So what the Apostle Paul does after we move beyond this accountability factor, he goes into the practical side again. And he says, verse 13, because we're going to give an account for ourselves to God, let us not therefore judge one another anymore. Anymore. When does that begin? Right now. When 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 does that go into effect? Right now. Now, he doesn't say to not judge at all. He says, don't judge one another, But judge this, rather. In other words, here's how you judge the situation. Here's how you measure what's right and what's wrong. That no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. That's what you judge. What are you doing to prevent being a stumbling block to your brother? You notice where the focus is now? It's no longer on the brother. Now it's on you. Am I doing all I can to be sure I don't put a stumbling block or an occasion for my brother to fall? 
Listen, there's not many things much more cruel than to intentionally or to allow something to be placed into your brother or sister in Christ's life so that you might see them fall. There's nothing more cruel than that. As a matter of fact, if we set out to say, listen, I'm going to do this to make them stumble, you're in violation of what Romans 14, 13 says. And I would submit to you that's because you don't really believe what verse 12 said. You don't really believe you're going to give an account to God for it. We're going to give an account, and he says, don't judge one another. In other words, remember the whole concept here was judging a brother or sister who is strong or weak in the faith. Don't set yourself up to be a critic and judge of the conduct and the lives of other believers. Don't spend your time trying to find fault with one another. Don't try to find weaknesses in one another. Don't exaggerate differences of opinion and practices, but rather, why don't you spend your time endeavoring to help one another? That's the idea here. Imagine if we spend as much time as we do placing stumbling blocks, imagine we spend as much time and effort in trying to be a help to another brother or sister, the difference that it would be in our lives. Now, if we sit here today and we say, preacher, I'm glad I'm never a stumbling block, you need to re-examine yourself and I need to re-examine myself. This is not some rarity that Paul is talking about. We are so quick to take ourselves out of the text and say, I'm telling you, those Roman Christians, they were something else. Those Corinthian Christians, they were something else. I'm glad we're not like that. The problem is, those churches in Rome and those churches in Corinth were not given to us. Those Corinthians were not to say, hey, here's how things can really get bad. They're to show us this can happen to you. We often mistake ourselves in thinking that I'm not guilty of the things that Paul's talking about here. We do this, we judge one another, or we cause someone to stumble when we make our opinions, our practices, the deciding factor in our fellowship. In other words, my practice doesn't line up with your practice, so I'm splitting fellowship with you, so I'm going to make you stumble. Instead of looking for ways to avoid the collision on the path, we find a way to run head on into each other and say, I will have my way. We are very, very stubborn, hard-headed people. Often we hear people say, you know, that person is so hard-headed, they're so stubborn, it always has to be that their way. Most of us, if not all of us, if you really were honest with yourself, it's true of all of us. We are very, very slow to give in to what we have set our feet in the sand and we say, I will not be moved from this. The problem is we're setting our feet in the sand of something that's not even a biblical principle. It's what you have decided is truth. And because it's truth for you, it's going to be true for everybody. The problem with that is, is that you don't have the basis and you're causing a stumbling block. Oftentimes we look at these things and we say, well, I, did, I didn't intentionally stick my foot out and make them fall. No, but you maneuvered the situation in order that they would come across that they would fall when they, we know how we work. So what Paul is doing, this is a rebuke. Paul's rebuking them. He's rebuking me. 
Please don't take this this morning as me standing up rebuking you because I am guilty, guilty, guilty. We've all been guilty of these things. We occupy our minds with things that mean nothing. We find fault with other brothers and sisters' life that mean nothing. Instead of focusing our mind upon what are we doing with Christ? We're more concerned about getting our way than we are the gospel. We're more concerned about making sure our opinion is heard rather than Christ's name being glorified. Did the church at Rome deserve a rebuke? Absolutely. Does the church at 3791 Peter Road deserve a rebuke? Absolutely. Why? Because we all fall in these areas. There is nowhere scripturally you can point to and say, I have arrived and I'm fulfilling this perfectly. Why? Because you still have a sin nature. And as long as sin reigns and has any part of you, we're all at risk of these things. So what Paul does here, he says, verse 14, I know and am persuaded, this is Paul's own testimony, by the Lord Jesus. His persuasion was from the Jesus, not Paul's manifesto, not Paul's philosophy of life. Not Paul's seven steps to your best life now. I am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. Where did Paul get that from? He got that from the Scriptures. He got that from the fact that there is nothing unclean anymore because Jesus Christ has fulfilled all of the ceremonial law and He's made it clean. But He says this, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. This goes all back to review we've been talking about. Everybody doesn't get that yet. So if a person thinks that that's still unclean, don't be a stumbling block to them. Let them have it. That means you've got to put yourself, you've got to put yourself in a humble position and you've got to put them in a place where you say, listen, I know I have complete liberty, complete freedom in Christ, but this younger brother or sister or this new, new uh, brother or sister in Christ doesn't yet understand that. You don't have to do away with it on your timetable. Oftentimes people come into congregations and this happens and they come in and they immediately find out this is a congregation of people who've been saved for a long time. They've been around the Lord for a long time. They have a lot of things nailed down and settled. That's good, but it's also dangerous because if you're not careful, a new believer comes in and thinks, I can't live up to that church's standard. They're not going to accept me where I am in my walk with God. And yet Paul says, listen, if they call it unclean, even though you know it's not, let them have it. Don't cause that to be a stumbling block in their life. Paul's not introducing a new subject. We've been talking about this particular chapter for now three or four weeks, the same topics here. It's true that the law, and, and, and this is where the danger comes in. Sometimes we say things like this, well, the law's no longer a schoolmaster. We don't have to observe the law. And folks, this is happening all around us. There are, there are church congregations who stand up and they say, listen, we are completely free from the law of Christ. We don't even have to pay attention to the law anymore. No, we still need to be paying attention to it. 
we need to consider that liberty again. Why do I have liberty in Christ? What did I do to earn any liberty at all? Absolutely nothing. What do you do to keep your liberty in Christ? Absolutely nothing. Why are you even in Christ? What's the merit? What's the, what's the, what was the worth? Nothing. Perfect humility is understanding you're nothing. I don't have anything to give. I owe it all to Christ. My liberty I owe to Christ. I'm not free in Christ because of something that I've done. We ought to consider using liberty for what's expedient for another brother or sister. That means when we see that weaker brother, that weaker sister, instead of telling them how wrong they are, come alongside and say, listen, let me help in this. Not arrogantly. By the way, coming up and telling somebody you're a Bible scholar and you have all the answers, that's not humility. Coming alongside and helping the weaker brother, you might not even say a single word. You don't have to declare to somebody else what your skill set is. You don't have to say, look, I'm really good in New Testament. I'm really good in Old Testament. I'm really good about this liberty stuff. I'm really good. I can Just come alongside them and encourage them and help them and edify them. Instead of telling them all the places, well, that's foolish thinking. Don't you know the law's done away? Don't you know the, the law was just a schoolmaster to point us to Christ? Folks, if you think that doesn't affect people when they come inside of a church, you're mistaken. Look, I pray every day that the Lord matures this church to a place where this church is so doctrinally, so biblically strong, and so theo theologically sound that it, 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 it's, it, it's, it's nearly impossible for us to be deceived. But don't let that become so intellectual that you miss out on the compassion of a weaker brother or sister. How do we do this? This is not you getting up tomorrow and turning over a new leaf and saying, okay, listen, tomorrow I'm no longer going to judge my brother. You can only do this in the Spirit of the Lord. Amen. Only the Holy Spirit can lead you to do this. Folks, we have had enough weeping at altars and enough turnover new leaves and putting post-it notes on our mirrors and, and saying, I'm, I'm writing it down. I'm changing today. You cannot change without the Holy Spirit of God guiding you. The most frustrating life in the Christian life is you trying to reform yourself over and over and over again and become a better Christian today. Five-step Christianity. Do this, 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 and this, and you will be a better Christian. No, the Holy Spirit of God is the only one that can lead you into a life where you're no longer a stumbling block. I'm no longer a stumbling block. The Holy Spirit of God, the Lord Jesus Himself is the one that broke down the wall. He is the one. Paul says in verse 15, But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably, destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ is died. Look what he's saying there. This is not a private opinion. Paul has just now said, I've been taught by the Lord Jesus Christ that our relationship with him and our spiritual condition has never nor will ever be determined by meat or by drink or the keeping of days. It was by Christ. 
So if a person eats or drinks in the context we've been talking about, what he thinks is forbidden by God, he is guilty with respect to God if he really believes that that was forbidden. In other words, if that man or that woman eats of that meat which they really believe God said not to, then they are violating God. Now you say, look, I see it a different way. That's the point. We would say something like, well, that's foolish thinking. There's no, there's no violation of God. What Paul was saying is if that man in his conscience believes if he eats of that meat that he's actually violating a principle of God, Paul said he's held accountable for that. Listen, God has given us a conscience for a reason. He's given us a Holy Spirit for a reason. Don't ignore those leadings. Even if it's different than what you believe. By way of an application, if meat offered to an idol is available to you, we talked about this a few weeks ago, and you don't see any harm in eating it, don't eat it with the intent of offending the brother that you know will be offended by it. In other words, don't destroy his confidence and his fellowship in God just for the sake of you being right. This happens. It's not necessary with food. It's not necessary with observances of days. But there are things biblically we have a hard time understanding that people are not at the same place, or maybe we're not even at the same place. It's a cruel mind that says, the meat is more important than my brother's salvation. And that's what you're doing. When you make a federal case over an eating of meat that you say is not, should not be any offense, you're more concerned about being right than you are your brother or sister's walk in Christ and their salvation. You say, preacher, that's not nice. No, it's not nice. Imagine this running rampant in churches, and it does. People come into church and they look down at one another because so-and-so is this and so-and-so is that, as if we have been given the perfect ability to judge instead of saying, listen, maybe I should spend more time judging myself. I have already found out if I sit and judge myself all day, I'm never going to have time to judge anybody else. I have too many of my own issues. I have too many times when I read the Scripture and I'm saying, wow, that preaches well, but you know what? It actually is more convicting of me. Maybe I shouldn't preach it. Maybe I should just read it because I needed it. You see... If we have more concern about being right than we do edifying our brother, then we completely have missed what Paul is talking about here. We follow Christ's example. You realize Christ never one time destroyed the weak or the weaker brother or sister with one of these meats or holy days or the, even the Sabbath. Don't touch the Sabbath. Jesus performed things on the Sabbath to show the compassion of who he was. It's pretty amazing. We can holler about what we're standing for, but yet Christ himself said this is not a matter of life and death. Again, it's not compromise. It's the reality of the Bible showing us. Verse 16, let then your good be, let not then your good be evil spoken of. 
Paul says in the previous verse, Christ didn't die for the meat. He didn't die for the right or the offensive meat. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. Here's what I'm finding, and this is my opinion. I'm not going to point the chapter and verse on this. Believers are screaming louder than they've ever screamed before about the goodness of God, about righteousness, about the gospel, but then they're being haters at the same time. The, loud, the voices of the gospel are louder than they've ever been before, and yet people are more turned off now than they've ever been. Why? Because your good, your kindness is being evil spoken of. You preach about a Christ of love, and yet you, you bite and devour one another. What kind of Christianity is that? Come to Jesus. He loves you. But I hate my brother or sister. And I, next time I get a chance, I am I'm taking them out. The voices are louder. And yet, we forget verses like this. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. There are times... When you just need to be quiet. You don't need to respond. You don't need to say anything. You just need to be quiet. That's the hardest thing in the world for me to do is just be quiet. And you can only do that in the power of the Holy Spirit because your flesh says, I'm going to get them. And I have a right to get them because they are offending me. Christ offended everybody, every place he went. When they realized Christ was not going to do for them what they wanted him to do for them, they turned on him on a dime and said, listen, we want nothing to do with him. People stood, the Pharisees stood and spoke evil of the goodness of Christ himself. Yet what did Jesus do? Did he respond in kind? No, he went around doing good. He increased his goodness, not his hatred, and spewing evil. Listen, liberty in Christ does not give you an ability to spew hatred and evil because you're in Christ. And listen, it's good to have liberty. It's good to have the peace of God. But be careful that you do not use it in a way with the intent of offending or becoming the cause of division among the people of God. I think there, biblically speaking, there are serious offenses for dividing the people of God. That's why Paul makes such a big deal about this. Listen, you're going to be divided from the world who doesn't love Christ. When, and, but again, you still don't preach hate. Folks, this church stands on nothing hateful. And it will never stand on anything hateful. If it even has a whiff of hatred, we have no part of it. Period. Why? Because there's nowhere that we're told to allow our hatred to be misused and abused in our liberty. It's not there. We proclaim the truth. Sometimes the truth is going to come across as being hated, right? Isn't it amazing when you tell, you read John 3.16, or you preach John 3.16, or you say John 3.16, the response of an unsaved person is, that's hate speech. That's not hatred. 
But the world takes it that way because they don't know him. See, they want, the, the society wants us to stop preaching hatred. If you're preaching the Bible, you're not preaching hatred. If you're preaching something external from this Bible, you're preaching hatred. Don't ask the church to back up your hatred if it doesn't line up with Scripture. It's happening all across this country. Churches are out there waving flags and hanging signs and saying, this is our freedom in Christ. No, that's your own philosophy. It's not God. It's not the Scriptures. Just like Paul is saying here, listen, if you believe there's no offense in the meat, don't go wave in your brother or sister's face and say, look what I can do and, and this is offending you. He's equating that to hating your brother or sister when you're intentionally trying to offend and provoke. Listen, I called them out by name and I'll call them out again and they're, 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 they're trying to come back into the, the media again. This Westboro Baptist Church out west, listen, we have no part of that. We have no part of it. None of their belief do we stand for. None of them. As far as I'm concerned, that is a heretical, non-believing congregation of people. You cannot do the things that they do and know the love of Christ. It is impossible. Again, who are you to judge? I'm not. I'm just giving you my opinion. But when your number one goal is to demonstrate just how right you are and how wrong everybody else, and it's filled with hate, there's a problem there. You see, you don't see hatred. Paul doesn't use the word hate in the Scripture here. But when your good is evil spoken of, and he's talking in the midst of believers, he is showing there's an absence of loving one another, which we talked about in Romans 13, verses 8 through 14. Remember that message. When we fail to do this, we're failing to love one another. And look what he says in verse 17. He says, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Now remember, man, and Paul's already dealt with this over the last couple of chapters, men are prone to cling to externals in worship. In other words, they're, they're more concerned about the external than they are eternal life. It's the, it's the, 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 the Pharisee. He says the righteous of Christ and the joy that is communicated by the Holy Spirit of God. And the peace comes by the purchase of our salvation by the blood of Christ. The reason we have peace, the reason we have righteousness, the reason we have joy is because we have Christ. That's why. Now that peace, that joy, the world doesn't fully get that. But the foundation of Paul's entire argument is that the kingdom of heaven does not consist in external religion. It consists in righteousness, peace, and the comfort of the Holy Spirit of God. Folks, there are times when uncertainty comes in our world and we see it and we think, now's the time for me to stand up for God. Now's the time for me to make sure God gets His way you have to find your comfort in the Holy Spirit of God and say, listen, Lord, you have this. You have it. 
When those fears assail us, like that song said, our hope is in Christ. When we think God has taken His eye off of us just for a moment, our hope is in Christ. Why? Because the Holy Spirit reminds us who we are. He in these things, for he that in these things serveth Christ. In other words, what's acceptable to God? External religion? No. What's acceptable to God are the things righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. That's what's acceptable to God. There are many who are more concerned about their external righteousness because they want other people to see just how good they are. You realize all these things are, for the most part, they're not even seen externally. They are the things that the internal presence of the Holy Spirit of God brings us. The joy that's here doesn't mean that we run around every moment of every day with a smile on our face, although I think that would help us. I really think it would. You say, I don't have anything to smile about. If you're in Christ, you have a lot to smile about. You have everything to smile about. Well, I don't feel very peaceful today. Do you see everything going on around us? Everything's so chaotic. Exactly. And instead of adding to the chaos, why don't you just take a few moments and be reminded of who you are in Christ and say, praise God, I'm not... Acceptable to God because of my external righteousness and my external displays of worship because God doesn't even accept those. But what he does accept are the things that only the Holy Spirit gives. A man's not saved because he says he is. A man is saved because the presence of the Holy Spirit dwells in him. Even the way we try to assure people that they're in Christ is often centered on the man, not on God. My assurance is not on anything that I did. My assurance is the presence of the Holy Spirit that I know dwells within me so that when I don't live as I should, it's not because I didn't know better. It's because I decided to go against the Holy Spirit of God living in me. But isn't it convenient? We blame, we blame our problems on other people instead of saying, no, the problem is I disobeyed the Holy Spirit. He clearly told me what I should do. Righteous joy and peace, those are the things that serve Christ. True believers recognize true godliness. How do we recognize it? In the externals? No, by the presence of what we've already read here. We see it, we know it. Let us therefore, verse 19, follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. It's interesting. Nobody chooses that as a life verse. You know what most of our life verses are? They're about what God does for me. Do you see what that verse says? Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. Imagine if the entire desire of your Christian life was to edify another brother or sister or edify people in general. I have never, I've never read a preacher who took that as his life. I've never, never seen a... And I was in some circles before where I was in those weird circles where people wanted preachers to sign their Bible. Strangest thing I've ever seen. I, I still to this day, I'm like, wait a minute. People lined up to sign a Bible? What were they doing? Like an autograph? I never saw that as a life verse. And I never saw anybody choose verses like that. Why? Because this gets you completely out of the way. It's, it's, life's no longer about you anymore. Now life is about what can I do to edify another brother or sister? The problem is we're standing here saying, but I need edified. 
I need edify today. Edify me. And I will wait. We all need it. And guess what would happen in our church if we actually all lived that? We wouldn't have to go to the world looking for edification. We'd have it within our own congregation. Maybe we should all take that as our live verse if you believe in those kind of things. I think it's hard to take one verse, but there's one right there. Emphasize and dwell upon the things that bring us together into fellowship and avoid those things which divide. Preach and practice the things that build up and strengthen in faith. Look, if you have liberty in things that are regarded as those doubtful disputations we've talked about, yet you have brothers and sisters who are offended by that, then leave it off. It's not that important. I have a right to eat meat at the church fellowship. Is it that big of a deal? It shouldn't be. That's his point. Leave it off. The use of this liberty is not just for our church life. It ought to be the entirety of our whole life. Believe it or not, you ought to try to edify that unbeliever. You said, they're my worst enemy at work. They hate Jesus. They hate God. Edify them. Seriously? Yeah, there's a verse I was reading yesterday from the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> I came running in the house yesterday and told Jennifer, I was like, do you see this? This is amazing. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, when he says, it's been said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. And I say unto you that you're to love your enemies as well. Do you know who he was talking about? In the true context of the Sermon on the Mount, he was talking about the publicans who collected their taxes. And by the way, those publicans sometimes did this little thing of overcharging them and charging them fees that were not even required. And you know what they did with that money? They pocketed it. Here's our, here's our America today. This is unfair. We want our rights. They're, they're robbing us blind. Jesus says, hey, guess what? Love them. Now we've got a group of people running around saying, no, you know what? We demand that we get fair and equal treatment. Show me where. Christ never said, go demand for equal treatment. He said, listen, love your enemies. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's an amazing thing how many little nuances in the Bible we've missed somewhere along in our Christian life. Everything else, like I said, I grew up in churches that emphasized the judging part and missed the compassion and the loving your enemies part. So how am I supposed to love an enemy? Through the Holy Spirit, it's the only way you can do it. You know, instead of arguing with that individual, find a way to edify him. Find a way to show them the goodness of Christ. Try to show them Listen, even if a man, he says in verse 22, he says if, he said in verse, verse 21, or 20, I'm sorry, he says, for meat destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. This goes back to what we talked about before. We all know the meat doesn't do anything to the, to the cause of Christ, to the cause of God, but it is evil for that man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. The people who scream about their liberty in Christ often also avoid Romans 14, 21, which says, if you know anything you're doing 
causes another brother or sister to stumble in Christ, you're violating this principle. Liberty doesn't scream, I have a right to eat whatever I want. Liberty in Christ is demonstrated in humility and demonstrating with the desire to edify. Folks, I'm convinced most of what we churches are arguing about is not going to matter one iota. It's not going to matter the judgment seat. There is nothing you're going to stand before Christ and give an account that you did in this life and say, this was worth me causing another brother to stumble over. You're not going to stand up there and say, Lord, I I need to explain what happened in February of 1985. I need to to explain to you the circumstances. It's not going to happen. The reality is, I talk about giving an account, not because he doesn't know. He already knows. It's not like you are going to confess all these things because he doesn't know them. You're going to give an account because he already knows about these things. You're going to stand before Christ. There's this double warning that's being given here. And the warning is mostly directed here at the end of this chapter, not to the weak, but to the strong. He said, it is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine or anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. You should read that and reread it. And I love this word, happy. <laughs> I know the original language. It's not the happy that you think where you're, walking, you're jumping all over you know, and just jump in with you. It is, it's perfect contentment. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. If a man is not bound by these superstitions to hold these holy days and meats and drinks and rituals, but he finds his joy, his righteousness, his peace only in Christ. He is a happy and a contented man. But he warns those that are strong, those that have this more certain, more sure knowledge of his liberty. Keep that treasure until the very end. Use it profitably. Use it as a way of edifying. Don't use it to tear down the weak. Use it to edify one another. Verse 23 shows us that the man who has the understanding of this Christian liberty. Man must walk in the light that he has. Listen, we don't all understand the word of God at the same level at the same time. You walk in what you know is right. If it lines up with scripture and it lines up and that is, that's you and say, look, this is what I believe, then live it, but don't cause someone else to stumble with it. Whatever we do, it must be done with this conviction. When you hear somebody say this, and this is just kind of a little teaching point for myself and a great reminder, when you say it's my conviction, the only acceptable conviction is a conviction that agrees to the Word of God and the will of God. When someone stands up and says, my conviction is this, the question is, does that agree with the Word and the will of God? Because if it doesn't, it's not a conviction, it's an opinion. 
Conviction ought to be based on Scripture. Conviction ought to be based on this is what thus saith the Lord. So what Paul shows here in Romans 14, he shows us that all is by faith. For a man to be certain and without a doubt in matters and things indifferent. That's what faith is. Faith is a man who is certain and without doubt in matters and things indifferent. In other words, there's a certainty that is in God and I'm settled in the things that are doubtful, those things that are indifferent. That's faith. The Lord Jesus himself being God as well as man. Notice again as we conclude this, the account will be rendered directly to Christ. The Redeemer. Christ is God. Christ has the authority to judge. 2 Timothy 4.1 tells us that Christ is the judge of the quick and the dead. That means He is the judge of all. Nobody possesses the qualifications to fully and righteously and perfectly judge anything or anyone but God Himself. He is the only judge. Let's stand together if you would. Next week, we're going to begin in Romans 15 and deal with another popular subject, like-mindedness. Paul gives a simple instruction, be like-minded, and we'll cover that next week. Let's pray together.